0: Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, and as we've talked about the weather, we're reminded that you are in charge of the weather. You control the elements, and we're so grateful for that. We know that the devil gets his hand mixed up in all of that, too, because he wants to be in control, but we're thankful that you are the one who's really in control. And we're grateful that you are in control of our lives, and that we can come together and study together and also talk about how we can serve you better. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will bless our time in this class as we talk about the work of deacons and deaconesses. May your Holy Spirit guide our discussion in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, how many of you are a deacon or a deaconess? Okay, and, uh, and that's a very uh, valuable uh, role that you play in your local church. How many of you have been in this class of mine before? Yes. <laughs> now that's actually good. Um, just because I don't want people to get stuck in a rut. But it's okay if you want to come back and you know, go through it a refresher course. I don't mind that either. But I like it when they're new people because it's one of the reasons I do the class is because I want to make sure that people have an opportunity to learn what their responsibilities actually are. And the uh, one thing I need to share with you, I shared it with the elders in the last uh, few days, and that is this. I'm going to share you a lot of things with you today and tomorrow in relationship to being a deacon or a deaconess. Probably about halfway through, Today's class, maybe not so much because we're going to be talking about qualifications mostly today, but when we talk about job description, people go about halfway through the class and they say, as soon as I can find my pastor, I'll turn in my letter of resignation, because they say, I didn't realize I was supposed to do all that, and no human being can really do all that, (laughs) and that's maybe where you're going to come to, and I just want to remind you start where you are. You didn't come to a class for me to tell you that you're doing everything right. I could have just simply said you're doing everything right, don't bother wasting the time and go on to another class. But I will challenge you a little bit by raising the bar and most importantly, reminding you of what the responsibilities are from a biblical perspective, the spirit of prophecy, and the outline of uh, the materials that, that we have. I want to encourage you that as you see various things that do really need to be done in the job of a deacon or a deaconess, in the task of a deacon or deaconess, that you'll realize it's an opportunity to strengthen service. And there, uh, there are, in this capacity, opportunities for you to involve other people as well in the ministry that you're doing and sharing this ministry with other leaders in the church. We uh, we tend to think very narrowly of the work of deacons and deaconesses without realizing that that, that work is much broader than we have realized as we begin to understand uh, this task. So I think it'll get clearer for you as we go through. One thing I do want to mention to you that there is a book entitled, sorry I forgot to bring it with me here today, but it's the Deacon and Deaconess's Handbook. How many of you already have one of those? Okay. No, that is a book I've used in teaching before and it's good. But more recently... The individual who wrote that book. Vincent White uh, did a wonderful job in outlining the work there, and it. Uh, he I used his material for a while until this handbook came out and began to lay that out. It's available at the ABC. I told them specifically I would be telling you about this, and it's a uh, every deacon and deaconess needs to have one. Uh, and I, if you uh, if you don't have one, make sure you get one. And that you also, if you are, have more than a de- one deacon or deaconess in your church, then make sure they all have one as well. And, and uh, it becomes a, a book that guides you in your ministry, lays out your job descriptions. It talks about a lot of what we're going to talk about because what I will be talking about the next two days is based on that handbook and the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy mixed up together. And so I want to encourage you with that. So make sure you get a copy. They're not terribly expensive, but they are a most valuable tool. Also, the church manual. You should have a copy of the church manual. You're one of the leaders of the church, a key leader in the church. And your responsibilities involve not just your, quote, narrow task, but even a broader task of keeping the church moving and humming together and moving along in the direction God wants it to go. And the church manual helps to provide the guidance that you need in order to keep the church united. Some people disparage the church manual, and they seem to think that it's a a, a virtue to put down on the church manual. But they don't stop and think about the fact that you've got 21 million members in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If all 21 million members decide to run the church the way they want to, you're going to have chaos. That's what you're going to have. And the church manual helps to keep us together. And sometimes I don't like this or I don't like that. That's what we say. But the truth is those have been sorted out and vetted by leaders of experience, people working together, guided by God through prayer, seeking to do the work that needs to be done, and it keeps us united together. So the church manual is a very valuable tool. So I just want to uh, keep that in mind. Now, I'm going to make one particular reference to uh, in the Bible to start with today, and that is in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we find the story of the deacons uh, first mentioned in, in the Bible. And the work that the deacons were was given was setting the foundation. And I accidentally left my... No, I did not. It's right here. I go if you have a Bible or an app or something like that, let me just mention the story to you as we get started because I want you to understand this connection with, uh, with what God's trying to uh, say to us. In Acts chapter 6, it says in verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, that we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the multitude. They chose Stephen and a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip Prochorus Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. There's so many pieces in here that will come out in what we talk about in uh, next uh, in in today and tomorrow. The key things that you want to find there, first of all, a crisis brought about the need. Correct? A crisis in the church. The church was growing. It was rapidly growing, so much so that uh, they needed organization. They had the the apostles. They had elders, the bishops, as they called them. But they were uh, trying to orchestrate a lot of different things in the church. And one of them was the distribution of the food um, and, the, for the, uh, and goods for the needs of the people. Remember, this is a time of persecution. This is not a time when the Christian church is popular. This is a time when, as Christianity is growing, the Jews are upset and the Romans are upset. The Romans are, are threatened to their, uh, their heathen and pagan way of life. And the Jews are threatened by the uh, idea that Jesus is uh, is the Messiah, and they challenge challenged with that. And they both react with persecution on the church, especially in Jerusalem. And so the church is strengthened and helped by everybody helping each other. And there were some wealthy, there were some that didn't have money. Those with wealth shared all that they had. Those with nothing benefited from what was shared. But that included food. You know, you didn't go down to Myers and just buy your food. And uh, even if you did have money, you had to have a store of food and you had to survive that way. Well, anyway, the crisis brought about the need for organization. And that's when deacons were appointed and you see the situation there. But notice that they were appointed and then they were ordained to their work. They didn't need to be ordained for the sake of just simply passing out food. They were ordained because their work was a spiritual work. And that's the main thing I want to talk about today, is I want to talk today about the role of deacons and deaconesses and the work that God has given and the qualifications that are there. I want to give you three basic characteristics First of all, in 1 Peter 1 verses, verse 22, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. When the apostles called for the first deacons to be elected by the community of believers, they asked for seven men embodying and living by the three basic, by three basic characteristics. Anyway, therefore, brethren, seek out these men. First of all, a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Okay? Those are the three characteristics that are being identified there. A good reputation is very important. You're a leader in the church. In order to be able to be a leader in the church, you have to have the respect of the church. And that's why when the nominating committee meets... They're looking for people that will be able to provide that leadership role in the local church and they would almost naturally choose people who have good, a good reputation. In other words, if somebody's name comes up and uh, it's uh, um, Susan McGillicuddy to be a deacon, deaconess, hopefully McGillicuddy not out there today, so <laughs> I hope we're all right with that. At any rate, they come up with a name, Susan McGillicuddy, and the nominating committee says, "You know, she just causes so much trouble in the church, and she just got a bad reputation. You know, her reputation is that she steals from the bank once a month. You know, and, and I mean, she just doesn't have a good reputation." Um, I'm being extreme on purpose because I figure that <laughs> chances are they aren't going to bring up that name in the first place. But if it does, it makes the point. She's got a bad reputation. She doesn't rightly represent the name of Christ. She isn't naturally going to be somebody who is going to be uh, uh, chosen there. But if the name comes up, that's a question that has to be identified along the way. Kitsons, if you'd grab uh, those uh, notes there, would be great. We, uh, we want to understand what that's about. But this reputation is both inside and outside of the church community. And I think sometimes we forget about that. There are times I have had, as a pastor, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, so and so has a really bad reputation in the, in the community. Somebody that the church, um, thinks of highly and that they think pretty highly of themselves, which the Bible warns about, right? But in the community, they have a bad reputation, a reputation of being nasty, um, uh, and maybe uh, maybe even a little bit of stingy or a hard business person to work with or something to that effect. You want somebody who's going to be a leader in your church in this capacity who has a good reputation both in the community of the church and in the community outside of the church. Full of the Holy Spirit and also full of wisdom. Obviously, those are judgment calls on the part of people. We don't always know when the Spirit of God's working in an individual in terms of overtly. But the truth is, the Bible also reminds us in Galatians 5 that The fruit of the Spirit is present in those people's lives who have the Holy Spirit. So if you're not seeing that fruit, then you need to ask the question whether that's the case or not. Getting a little farther into the story that I was telling you from Acts chapter 6 that we read a few moments ago, the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being neglected by the Hebrew Jews who dispensed the daily resources and food allocations And therefore, the first deacons faced an internal cultural division. Do we ever face those kinds of challenges today? It does happen. Now, the wording in the New New Testament, Acts chapter 6, doesn't make it clear as to whether this was an actual neglect, an intentional neglect, or a perceived neglect. Do you understand what I'm saying? But the bottom line is somebody felt neglected by a certain group of people and that is really the bottom line. You know what they say, perception is reality. If you feel neglected and you think it's coming from somebody in particular, then maybe that to you at least is reality. And what we have to do is try to work to resolve those problems along the way. I do want to stress this particular aspect, and that is deacons and deaconesses don't often realize this is part of their work. They think that they are ordained to the responsibility and leadership, and I know that I'm not talking right now about male and deacons, deacons being ordained and uh, female deacons, s's. I'll, I'll talk about that in, in just a moment um, and all. but. A deacon, a deacon definitely is ordained to that position. You're not ordained deacons in order to take up the offering. You don't have to be ordained to take up the offering. You're ordained because you're a spiritual leader in the church. And because you're a spiritual leader, you need to realize that your job is spiritual. When you come to a situation like the Church did in Acts chapter 6. This was a spiritual problem. It was manifested in not meeting a physical need, but it was still a spiritual problem. You had a conflict developing in the church. As the church was growing, there were people that were new converts, and they didn't always love everybody the way they should. And the Hellenists which were the Greeks and the Jews sometimes got at odds with each other just because they were different cultural groups. And that apparently is part of what was going on in this situation. In order to be able to work this out, the decision was made that there were individuals needed who had respect of the community of the, of the church itself and who could begin to come in and to help with the administration of the food that needed to be distributed and the other needs that were there to make sure that the actions were clearly fair and everybody's needs were being represented appropriately. Helen White says of that particular situation, the enemy That is, Satan succeeded in arousing the suspicions of some who had formerly been in the habit of looking with jealousy on the brethren in the faith and of finding fault with their spiritual leaders. That begins to illustrate what really was going on behind the scenes. That also reminds us of what goes on in our local churches. In our local churches, the devil is always watching for an opportunity to stir up strife. I want you to go away even if the power quit today, I couldn't use the computer and I felt sick and had to go away and you only went away with what I've said up to this point. You would go away understanding the spiritual nature nature of your job and your responsibility to help your church through these kinds of events in your church. You may thought have thought that taking up the offering was your major responsibility, or counting the offering, or helping with a baptism by getting the water prepared, and helping the women on one side, ladies, gentlemen on the other side get ready for baptism, helping with a communion service, and that was basically your job. Now, those are almost incidental to the work of uh, the work of deacons and deaconesses. Important Important though they are, because there's a far more important need in the local church, and that is for spiritual leadership. The brethren in the work, the leaders in the church, are spiritual leaders. The devil wants people to constantly be picking at those leaders so that the church is divided and cannot focus on its mission. The apostles were aware of what Ellen White describes in the situation. And when they asked for seven men to be selected by the growing number of believers, they sought out individuals who would not be swayed from serving as Christ would and not be turned away from serving Christ, that they would recognize the spiritual nature of their work. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, talking about the role of deacons in the local church, Paul says that he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That is one of the challenges of leadership. When individuals are placed in the, into positions of leaders, uh, leadership, they sometimes fall into the trap of, uh, of becoming... Uh, thinking more highly of themselves than they should, or other traps that come with leadership without realizing that you want to put people in there in the first place who have already proven themselves to be able to handle the work of being a leader. That doesn't mean that you won't have individuals there who have never been a leader before but you want to look at people that are put in that position or you want to be yourself a person in that position who is of good reputation and through life's experiences up to that point, even if you've never been a deacon or a deaconess before, you've given evidence of your ability to handle leadership-type work or a willingness and ability to learn how to carry that responsibility. And uh, even though Paul was describing the characteristics of an elder or an overseer in the new growing church, this requirement can naturally be applied to deacons and deaconesses and needs to be there as well. One of the qualifications is full of the Holy Spirit. You know, we often don't talk about that on a nominating committee. Any of you ever sat on a nominating committee? Have you ever, you ever remember that being brought up when you're talking about deacons and deaconesses? Maybe we need to go back to the Bible and look at that. Not so much that, well, I don't want to overstate that either. Because of the fact that we need to be reminded that we need to be looking for spiritually minded people that the Spirit of God is working with and that there's evidence of that. In Ephesians five nineteen to 20 speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. A person whose life is full of the Spirit, who has the Holy Spirit working in their lives, is someone who's connected to God through Jesus Christ. A man or a woman who's inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit and serving as Jesus served. Let me put it to you another way. A deacon or a deaconess should first of all be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because that's the work that you're given. And a disciple of Jesus, you need to understand what a disciple of Jesus is. A disciple of Jesus was not just someone who walked around following Jesus. A disciple of Jesus... Is one who not only follows Jesus, but does what Jesus asks them to do. And that includes being a witness for Jesus. What did Jesus do with his disciples? He took his, the ones that were immediately around him, the twelve, but there were many other disciples that followed Jesus. In uh, in Luke chapter 10, I believe it is, he talks about, and, and Matthew 10, he talks about the disciples as part of their training, he sends them out. And in Luke chapter 10, he talks about the 70 being sent out. There were more than just 12 disciples. These disciples were trained, first of all, by watching Jesus, Jesus then giving them tasks to do, and then he sent them out on their own. And he wanted them to prove their ministry by the work that they did. And then they came back and they talked about the experience they had. And in uh, Luke chapter 10, they come back with joy. Why do they come back with joy? Because they have been able even to cast out demons and, and work miracles and, and, and to help people. That's, that's what they wanted to do. Well, that's what the kind of people we should be is disciples. Now, I know about the miracle part and the casting out demons, but it does remind the fact that you and I need to be spiritual people. Did you hear Mark Finley on on Saturday night or was it Sabbath morning? I can't remember which one it was. But when he was talking about the experience that he had down in Texas, the kinds of things that go on today, let's be reminded that the experiences of the Bible are not limited to just the Bible. And Ellen White and the, and the Word of God make it clear that the experiences of God's church in the past will be repeated, especially just before Jesus returns. Because the devil is going to be... He's angry. We're talking, we're talking Revelation chapter 12 here. He's angry. He knows it's just about over for him. And when you know when you're desperate, you do everything you can to resist what you know is coming. Because you know that once it's over, it's over. All right, I can get sidetracked on that and the whole thing. The bottom line is that you and I face real challenges, real spiritual challenges today. That's why we need to be connected with Jesus on a daily basis. We need to have a daily experience with Christ. We need to be walking with Him hand in hand, heart in heart, daily so that he can work through us. We need to be ministers of the gospel. I don't mean ordained, paid ministers. I mean we need to be disciples, servants, ministers of Jesus, ministering the gospel to other people, helping to lead other people to Jesus. That's what a deacon and deaconess is supposed to be doing. And when you look at Acts chapter 6 and the stories that follow, it's clear that those deacons were not just taking up the offering or passing out the food. And that is, we're talking qualifications here, and that's what God is wanting here. Continuing in Ephesians, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, hearts full of the Holy Spirit where there is joy, even in difficult circumstances. I don't mean bubbling over always having a a face that's shining, and so on and so forth. Well, that that doesn't hurt, (laughs) okay? But some people seem to do that more easily and better than others, but that are still surrendered to the Lord Jesus, and Jesus is reflected in their lives and the way they handle circumstances and issues. Full of wisdom is another qualification according to what we read in Acts chapter 6. Now we got the right verse up here, I think. Gleaned wisdom from the Word of God, learned from it, applied it. That's the ver- This is not what's coming from here, okay? That's from a, from a deacon servants of the house of God. Gleaned wisdom from the Word of God, learned from it, applied it, and practiced it. That's why Stephen, for example, the most famous of the deacons, and then there's Philip as well, but the most famous of the deacons because he was the first martyr. He was an individual in which there was wisdom, but he got it from the Word of God. He was the, an individual who could stand before the Sanhedrin, and he could preach. Is that a qualification for all, de- all deacons? I'm not suggesting that. But the fact that the Word of God is in our <coughs> lives and controls our lives, and we are spiritual leaders, means that we're also able to be spiritual teachers. As disciples and as leaders of the church, we need to be able to help other people to grow. We might do it through Bible studies and bringing people into the church, but we might also do it by helping people through biblical counsel as we visit them in their homes and we minister to people or teach a Sabbath school class or whatever else we might do. Our wisdom that we have comes from the Word of God. When somebody comes to uh, us and asking advice, it may be that there's good simple biblical counsel that we can turn around and give to them. Our wisdom is based upon the Bible. We turn around and teach people to get their wisdom from the Bible as well in answer to the questions and the needs that they might have. In that church environment, deacons and deaconesses have the responsibility, and I would add the authority, to handle problems as they occur without having to turn to pastors or elders for guidance or direction. I want you to catch that point. It's not on the screen, which means it's not in your notes, but I'm sharing a thought with you that's critical for you, and I want to repeat it to you. You have not only the responsibility, but you also have the authority to handle situations in your church without having to go to the pastor or without having to go to the elders for direction. Now, let me explain to that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. It doesn't mean you can't go there. But you have the authority to handle a situation when you know how to handle it. When you know what the need is, you don't need to go to somebody else. As a matter of fact, the whole reason that you have a job to do in your church and you've been appointed that job is because you are given a task to do to relieve the stress and the pressure off of the pastor and off of the elders. So that they can continue the work, the spiritual work, as the um, as the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, so that we can continue to do the work of preaching the word and we can do the work of praying. It doesn't mean just to pray, but because that is where the strength comes and providing the spiritual leadership for the congregation. The deacons were to be able to do this work as, uh, in a way that was handling the spiritual needs of the people and the physical needs of the people. Deacons and deaconesses need to make sure that the church's physical operation is running smoothly, which allows the elders and deacons to... Uh, elders and pastor, I'm sorry, to focus on the church's spiritual needs. But there are also spiritual issues that deacons and deaconesses can be handling, As along the way. The key here is to understand the end result. When you look at Acts chapter 6 and you see what was implemented, the appointing of deacons had a direct impact on the future of the church. In chapter 6, verse 7, this is what it said. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to notice that in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it is the, it is the, uh, it is, stop and say it right. The verses that precede it established the reason for this happening. In other words, the appointing of the deacons made it possible for the word of God to spread. Folks, your church may be on the verge of dying, It may be because you're expecting the pastor to do all the work. But God has appointed elders and deacons and deaconesses in the church so that the church can spread in the community the word of God. You need to be a part of doing that work. If you will do the work that God has appointed you because of the qualifications that have been recognized in you, you have not only the responsibility, but the authority to carry out those tasks in making sure that all these things are happening. Yes, the physical work of the uh, building of the church needs to be taken care of, but also the spiritual needs of your members also need to be addressed by this particular work. You will see the work advance. If you're doing the work God's asked you to do, you will see your church begin to grow. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Seventh-day Adventist churches today exist in a very modern world, which is not always a good thing. But we live in a real world, And deacons and deaconesses need to be able to not only live in the world, but they also need to be able to apply the principles of spirituality that we're talking about here. The care for the physical needs of the churches allows the pastors and elders to focus on the spiritual care of the church and the communities around them. God will bless the churches today as He did in the beginning of Christianity, if we will do the work that God has given us to do, uh, in, in his capacity. But again, I don't want the pat, the, the emphasis just to be on the physical needs of the, of the, uh, church building itself, but recognizing some of the other things as well, which we'll come back to, uh, to tomorrow. We're going to list uh, nine qualities uh, quickly as we go through here, coming out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 and verse 12, where Paul outlines the personal qualities of deacons and deaconesses. And these qualities can be divided into two areas of a person's life. First First of all, it is the personality traits, the personality traits of an individual. In other words, how a person is seen by the community of the church and outside of the community, uh, the church community in the surrounding public community. What are your, what's your personality like? And the Bible says that there are some traits that are necessary for you. We'll look at those in a moment. Also, the characteristics of a person's home life. Now, this part's a little sensitive because we don't always like people thinking about or nosing around in our personal life. But the truth of the matter is your personal life at home is reflected in your life outside the church, I mean outside the home. Whether you like it or not, it is. Many times we try to put on an air of something that's not true at home and it doesn't take long before that can come out one way or another. God wants leaders in the church to be above reproach when it comes to those things. So let's look at some of those very quickly. In in that passage, this is coming from the New International Version, but whatever version you have, the same idea will come out. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, we're not going to bog down in a discussion of alcohol and all that kind of thing. I'm simply going to tell you right now, the wine here is grape juice, and that's the discussion for right at the moment, okay? And uh, we'll just keep it that way. But in the, in this passage, we're reminded of these particular aspects. Continuing on, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well, says Paul. In other words, it's a very simple principle. If a person is being asked to or being looked at for the possibility of being a deacon, Then you start looking at the fact that, man, when the kids come to church, they're running all over the place. Nobody can corral them. They don't listen to father. They don't listen to mother. They don't listen to anybody in the church. And there's just like total chaos when they come to church. Is that really the person you want to be a deacon and a representative of of the church and leading the church in spirituality? How is that person going to be able to influence other people in the church? It doesn't mean that that person is a bad person. But it may mean that they don't need extra responsibility when they are having a hard time controlling what they have already as responsibility. So let them concentrate on what needs to be done in their own home at the time. But you want someone who already has figured out how to deal with that and how to manage their home. Because if they can manage their home, they can also help to manage what's going on in the church. It's evidence of skill of leadership. That's what it's talking about here. Am I, am I getting that part clear? Okay. I don't need to overemphasize that. So let's look at these qualities that are here. Worthy of respect, not double tongued, not indulging in too much wine. And in essence, it is simply talking about temperance. These nine qualities can be summarized in a very simple manner as you see them here. Also, going on a little farther, not pursuing dishonest gain, hold the truths of faith with a clear conscience beyond reproach or question. We're going to look at these a little bit more in detail here in a moment. Having only one wife and is faithful to her. <coughs> Yes, we don't believe in having more than one wife. I just want to be clear on that, and especially for deacons. And of course, I say it that way, and you say, well, you mean if it's especially for deacons, it can be otherwise for others? No, 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 that's not what I mean. A little humor here for a moment, but you get the point. A good manager of his children and a good manager of his household. Those are those nine aspects. Let's talk about worthy of respect for a moment. The word describing this quality has been translated many different ways in different applications. In the King James translation, the word used is grace. In the New King James, it is the word reverent. The words worthy of respect are used in the New International Version uh, as well. Other authors have used dignified to describe this characteristic The quality shows that in and beyond their church communities, deacons and deaconesses are known for being fair, trustworthy, and wise in all situations. So we just want to keep that perspective in mind. I'm not going to go any a whole lot more into that. Alexander Strach, an author, just made this comment. He said, the church is not simply a matter of life and death. The church is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. You and I need to understand as deacons and deaconesses, as leaders of the church, we're dealing with the weight of eternal things, not just taking care of the plumbing at the church or taking care of fixing communion bread. We're dealing with eternal values, eternal life and eternal death. Not being double-tongued, I think that comes out fairly clearly, but um This uh, thought here comes along and says, Whatever its exact meaning, the term plainly prohibits any kind of manipulative, insincere, or deceitful speech. Behind a deceitful tongue is a deceitful mind. Positively, the term emphasizes integrity of speech, sincerity, and truthfulness. When you and I think, okay, okay, I won't put it on you. When I think of double-tongued, I think of somebody who says one thing into your face and something else to your back, right? Or behind your back, I should say. God wants us as leaders to be individuals who can be trusted, who can be recognized as being um, individuals of integrity and sincere and of truthfulness. Uh, there are times when people will come up to me and say, even as a ministerial director, they'll say, the pastor lied to me. Well, I get real suspicious when people say that to me because to call a pastor a liar is a pretty hefty thing to do. What I usually find when somebody says that to me, some, the pastor told them that the meeting was going to start at 9 a.m. in the morning when it actually started at 9.30. And they say, well, the pastor lied to me. You know what? Pastors make mistakes, and maybe the pastor forgot or or, or whatever, but people will take that and make that as being a lie. Well, okay, but there are other issues that are far more important than that. If a person, if if a pastor or deacon or an elder in the church are making statements um, about an individual that are not true and they know that they're not true, Even if they don't know they're not true, they should be careful about those statements if they can be hurtful to other people. It is not something that they can uh, do without repercussions happening there. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. In other words, we need to be people of integrity that can be trusted. That's the bottom line, okay? Not indulging in too much wine, all right? We're talking about temperance. This personal quality can also be summarized by that word, temperance. This applies not just to drinking too much wine or alcohol, and I would emphasize drinking it at all. Okay. It also applies to any addiction that takes our attention away from God, our families, and our service in ministry. And by the way, today our tech, our addictions can come in many different forms and uh, they come in in relationship to alcohol, tobacco, all those kinds of drug-related issues, but they also come in the form of computers, pornography, time. Some people are so addicted to their computers that they can't even think straight without a computer in front of them. I'm serious. Some people just can't manage that and that, you know what, let's not forget that our phones uh it's over there, are computers as well, right? And so all of those things are areas that we must be very careful with and we need, I don't mean that, you know, you can't be a deacon if you have a computer, that's not what I mean. I mean we need to learn how to balance our lives, don't we? And that's part of what we're talking about here. Yes, please. I'm going to repeat it for the sake of the recording and that is, uh, you're making the comment that... Uh, uh, this individual says that there's a uh, similarity between the way uh, social media affects us uh, when it has in control of us as also opening an alcohol cabinet or something like that. Uh, it's not coincidental that these things can be addicting because uh, in the news we've all, I hope you, I, I'm assuming you might have seen it, um, over the last few years they've talked a lot about social media and even the design of social media that is put out in such a way as to make it addicting because they get money off of it. So if they can make it addicting, they do that. And we need to recognize that reality. In other words, there are tools out there that can be valuable. Use them as tools, but not as crutches. And so we need to recognize all of that. Thank you for your point. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Um, You shall not steal is one of the commandments. This quality helps to protect the church's financial stability financial stability and integrity, and reinforces this Ten commandment. This refers to people who seek to benefit themselves financially through immoral or illegal methods. A deacon or a deaconess needs to be somebody who is above reproach. And that's why in the community, sometimes people have a bad reputation. I've had people come to me, pastors or other leaders in the church and say, we've got a deacon in our church or we've got a person in our church and they have the reputation of not uh, being faithful with money. They borrow money from somebody in the church and they don't return it. Well, folks, a person in that kind of situation should not be a leader in the church. That's a bad reputation. And it's also a temptation because deacons do deal with money. And if you put a deacon in there who deals with money but doesn't know how to manage money and might even be borrowing it and not returning it, and then starts to get desperate, then what happens? They might be tempted by the money, and the... you see the chain that can happen. So all of these things are there. The council is good uh, and wise. Any misuse or abuse of the church's finances put both the church and ministry operations in jeopardy, and I've seen that happen where churches have had to face very difficult circumstances because somebody in the church uh, was not handling money appropriately. Uh, I don't want to spend any more time with that. Holding truth with a clear conscience is also something that we need to be able to work with. Hold tr- faith... Hold to the faith with a pure conscience and live in sexual, live, that is not right, Um, free of sexual immorality, of pilfering money, hating a brother, I should have edited this part, obviously I didn't, divorce a Christian spouse, okay. All right, so what this is trying to say, all right, I got this right now. What is trying to say that anybody who thinks they're living in a pure conscience, but they live in this way, they pill for money, they hate brother, they divorce a Christian spouse, or they mix a falsehood with the gospel, is not living with a pure conscience. Okay, that's what's trying to be said there. All right, sorry about that. The New Testament never allows people to have a separate life and a separate doctrine. You and I need to recognize that we must be people of integrity. If we're teaching one thing and living another, then we're not living up to what God has called upon us to do. And God wants us to be consistent. The New Testament does not allow for that kind of a life. We should be above reproach. I'm going to keep going here. I'm a little farther behind than I want to be, and I want to get to a couple other things. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, Daniel makes a um, a statement where he is dealing with his opponents um, who are trying to find fault with him, and the uh, work that he... uh, Well, not the statement, but the situation that he is with, they cannot find fault with Daniel. Daniel is faultless because he is consistent in his relationship with God. Remember, Daniel winds up in the lion's den, not because he's a bad person, but because he's a good person. And that is because he is an individual who says, I pray three times a day, and then goes and prays three times a day, not when it's just convenient. He's praying because this is his relationship with Jesus. Daniel's faith was grounds for his punishment. Well, we all ought to be that way, shouldn't we? According to Acts chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. He was clearly a leader there. Now, not all the deacons had the same leadership qualities that, uh, that Stephen had or are recognized that way in the Word of God. But they were all men of similar qualifications who carried this work out as God led them to do. In Acts chapter 7, Paul, I mean, uh, Stephen, when he was faced with the challenges of the Sanhedrin, and finally they take him out and they stone him. Verse 60 of chapter 7 says, Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He did so because of his relationship with Jesus. He had a relationship with Jesus, and he was willing even to die for Jesus. We should all pray that we don't face stoning, but we should be faithful, no matter what the circumstances, faithful to the Lord Jesus. The home of a deacon or a deaconess is to be a place where um, God and Christ are lived and recognized and worshiped and honored deacons and deaconesses are to have lives that are without blame or um or, or places of open sin they are to maintain integrity in word and action and attitude and that means that they are the same at home as they are at church now we all have our challenges just this morning you know or not just this morning but just recently Pastors, you know, we talk together and we're honest with each other. And sometimes the, the the worst time for a pastor's family is on Sabbath morning on the way to church. Everybody's stressed out. Everybody's anxious. And if we're going to get irritable, that's often a time when we get irritable. We're human beings. We are. But if that's our steady diet in our life of that kind of thing, then we need to stop and review our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with each other. We all struggle along the way, but we need to recognize that Christ is the power and he brings joy into our lives and and has a way of helping us living um, our lives at home the same as we live our lives at church. Having only one wife and being faithful to her. Now the question that naturally comes up in this situation is, does Is it a requirement for a deacon to be married? There are different ways of looking at this. Uh, there is no place in the life and service of any Christian, let alone a deacon or deaconess, for improper relationships with the opposite sex, including flirting and with or lusting after others. That is a basic principle. That's one of the challenges uh, sometimes that comes from individuals that might not be married because... <laughs> they may not have yet learned how to manage those responsibilities and those those actions. Um, they may also be misinterpreted at times. But here's the bottom line that I want to, and I'm not talking to the other right at the moment, I'm talking about to this issue. I had a, I had a, a uh, some leaders in the church, an elder, I mean a pastor actually called me and say, you know, we got a problem in our church. And our problem in our church is that we have a leader in our church who is doing some of what you see up here on the screen. And, um, and that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, we need to be really, really careful. That's why in my elders' class yesterday, I said, when you go visiting, you know, it's good to take uh, uh, to... When you go and visit uh, a woman... At their home and there's no husband there and there isn't going to be some, somebody else there. Then you could have a deaconess go, but you don't go in the same car together. The deaconess can meet you at that home and then you can go into the home together at that point. But you want to avoid the appearance of evil or any of those kinds of challenges. So we need to be very, very careful with this. And, and I, th- I will say rightly so. And I really want to be clear about this. I want to be rightly so. But society has become very sensitive to this issue. And in time, at times, uh, that sensitivity allows for accusations that are not based upon fact. But at the same time, there is so much of this being done the wrong way that I certainly understand why society has reacted with a Me Too movement and so on and so forth. The fact of the matter is we should be above reproach and it should never even be a question that be we are being careful. Ellen White makes it abundantly clear in her crystal clear way of speaking that the way we treat the opposite sex is to be above reproach. And she just, she talks about, you know, you gotta be careful with, uh, with the hugs and, and that kind of thing. You just have to be extremely careful with it. Well, if we're following that counsel, there wouldn't be a need for a Me Too movement. If we were following the Bible counsel, there wouldn't be a Me Too movement. And, and I'm not speaking politically now. I'm saying the church should not have any of that going on, period. Alright. And so deacons and deaconesses, as part of their qualifications, need to be above the approach this way. I remember as a pastor, there were people who sometimes uh, wanted to be a deacon or a leader in the church, but he had a reputation that he just, he hugged everybody. But he hugged everybody too much. Okay. And, uh, and, and that's not a good thing. Well, that person shouldn't be a leader until they learned the boundaries that are appropriate and um and they should be probably dealt with in other ways besides I'll keep going with that good manager of his children a, a deacon uh, who is a good manager of the home a good manager of his children as uh, has uh, the qualities that represent good leadership and their family also is a good representation to the church and the community deacons deaconesses should be able to bring people, especially new members or visitors, into their home and be an example of what a Christian home is like. When new members are baptized, we teach them about the Sabbath, but then we expect that they have figured out exactly what Sabbath keeping is like. Instead of discipling them afterwards, by the way, that's one of the works of a deacon or deaconess, is to be working to disciple new members. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But this work of discipling these new members and and uh, and working with that includes bringing them into our own homes so that they can just by looking, they can recognize what it, a, a Christian home is like. And for example, bring them into your home on a Sabbath on a Friday evening and show them how to welcome the Sabbath. Bring them into your home on Sabbath afternoon and show how you close the Sabbath by. Just doing it, what you would do naturally, you are demonstrating to them what they should be doing in their own home. You know, it's not unusual to go, even though you would talk about this in preparing people for baptism, to go into a person's home after they've been baptized, coming to church for a few weeks and so on. You go to their home on Sabbath and the television is on, all right? Now, they're so used to that as a habit, they've just not even given it that a thought. You talk about it in, ba- in preparation for uh, baptism, but people sometimes don't always integrate everything. That's why they need to continue to grow after baptism. <laughs> Your home should be the kind of place where this kind of demonstration should go on. And that's why we talk about the home here with a deacon and deaconess having a home that is representative with the children uh, that would come into that home, would learn from the children also in that home of how to be Christians and live Christ-centered lives, Christ-centered marriages, Christ-centered homes, Christ-centered kids. Kids coming together at the end of uh, Sabbath and having family worship together is a powerful testimony to a new family who's never had family worship. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Let me just mention one more thing here. Uh, Obviously, you've got a home here where families meeting together and and having family, uh, a blessing at the table, and others always, again, a witness. I want to mention one other thing Uh, One of the things that when you're looking for deacons and deaconesses to to be role models in your church, the nominating committee will ask, and generally they will do, and I have had situations even just recently where the Sabbath-keeping of a particular individual was questioned who was being asked to be a deacon. That's appropriate. It is appropriate. And I usually will say this, the worst possible time the worst possible time to deal with those kinds of issues at the nomi- is at the nominating committee. If there are issues like that, don't deal with them at the nominating committee. That's not them. The discipline committee is not the nominating committee. Well the nominating committee is not the discipline committee. Those kinds of things should be dealt with on a spiritual level with a pastor working with them before you get to that point. But sometimes those things don't come up and nobody's aware of it until it comes up in the nominating committee and for whatever reason it comes up there and it becomes part of that discussion and and that situation. We should all be faithful and we should be leaders who represent rightly what we believe and what the Bible teaches. And that means keeping the Sabbath holy home should be made all that the word implies. It should be a little heaven upon earth, a place where the affections are cultivated instead of being studiously repressed. Going on, she says, our happiness depends upon this cultivation of love, sympathy, and true courtesy to one another. Every Christian home should have rules and parents should, in their words and deportment toward each other, give to the children a precious living example of what they desire them to be. What we're simply reminding us about is that our churches will reflect our homes if our homes are not a reflection of Christ. If they are a reflection of Christ, they will be reflected in the church as well. God is wanting our homes to be strong places. She continues by saying purity in speech and true Christian courtesy should be constantly practiced. Teach the children and youth to respect themselves, to be true to God, true to principles. I love it when I'm in a church and um, kids are kind of, you know, being kids and there's an appropriate level for kids to be kids. But they're coming and they're talking, and, and we're having conversation, and um, and and I'm talking to a young person. I'm saying, you know, that was uh, you, you really did a nice job in Sabbath School today, because I might see the kid get up and and uh, sing a song or do something or whatever, uh, read the scripture at church service, and I and I say that, and the kid, you know, like typical kids, a little shy, and hasn't not to say anything, but the parent says, now say thank you. You know, teaching, common courtesy, teaching those graces. That's not very common today. It's not very common today. Our society is reflecting a lack of this kind of thing, and our deacons and deaconesses in their homes should help be, uh, that should be part of it too. This is not a class on Adventist home but it is reminding us that our leaders should have these kinds of homes. Teach them to respect and obey the law of God. These principles will control their lives and will be carried out in their associations with others. The home that is a beautiful by love, sympathy, and tenderness is a place that angels love to visit and where God is glorified. And I'm almost done here, as you can see. I still have a couple slides to go. The influence of a carefully guarded Christian home in the years of childhood and youth is the surest safeguard against the corruptions of the world. All right, I'm going to keep going here and just pick up the last uh, few slides. A good manager of his household, uh, maintaining that. I want to have the... uh, we've said enough about that already. Let me just talk about uh, women and and, uh, deaconesses here for just a moment. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The four basic elements that are required are spouses and deacons and deaconesses, a respect uh, respected for their personal integrity and devotion to Christ, do not speak heartful words or spread gossip, practice temperance by avoiding any addiction uh, that would take attention away from God and are known by others to be trustworthy in accountability in their actions and their words. That. The main thing I wanted to emphasize and relate to to women in ministry, I have not said a lot about deaconesses. The roles of deacons and deaconesses in terms of qualifications are basically similar. The question does come up, and I'm going to mention this and then I will quit. We can talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. Um, I've not talked about the ordination of deaconesses. In this particular book that you have there uh, by Vincent White, and I've used it as a teaching manual for deacons and deaconesses in the past. It's a good book. He does address the issue of how we have gotten to where we are in relationship to ordination or lack of ordination. I'm talking about deaconesses. I'm not talking about pastoral ordination. I'm not talking about any of that. It's got nothing to do with that. The church manual does allow for the ordination of a deaconess. But I want you to understand that there is still some controversy over this issue. That controversy needs to be something that we are sensitive to. We need to recognize that that challenge presents its own difficulties and we don't want to split our church over these kinds of things because the church is still, your local church may struggle over this if you have that, uh, decide to have that conversation. Um, and, and we are all trying to understand that in relationship. I'm talking about deaconesses right now. I'm not talking about elders and, de- and, and, and all that. It's a whole other issue. And it even goes beyond that. But the Bible does not say a lot about deaconesses. Okay. It's pretty quiet about that. But there is some evidence of deaconesses being there. It, the evidence is that they were <coughs> wives of deacons but that helped to do the work along with the deacon. Because, as we'll see tomorrow, a lot of the work of a deacon... Was, or deaconess is involved, especially in the New Testament, taking care of the physical needs of church members. There were no hospitals in those days, okay? There were no doctors in those days, no nurses in those days, no social workers in those days. The church provided all of those kinds of cares or, there, or, or that care, or there wasn't any. And so you can see naturally that women need to be taking care of women and men taking care of men when it gets to that kind of a level. And that's where we begin to see that role developing and coming in there. Of course, there's Dorcas that we see of very much in that kind of a light as well. Um, so I'm just addressing that to tell you that there is uh, there's some discussion about that. The church manual does allow for the ordination of deaconesses, but it's not something that's pushed. And if it's something that you want to talk more about, we'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow so that we can answer some questions about it. All right, folks, I need to quit. I've given you some of the qualifications today. Tomorrow we're going to talk about duties and responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses, and uh, and then hopefully we'll have a little bit of time also for some questions and interaction. All right, let's have a prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your leading and your guiding. I pray that you will bless our time. Uh, the rest of this day as we go about our... Uh, opportunities here at Camp Meeting to hear the Word of God preached and to also continue to learn in seminars like this. We pray that you will help us to be faithful to you and represent you aright as leaders in your church. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about AudioVerse,